0: Open up to Exodus chapter 23, everybody. We are working through the book of Exodus. If you've just come in and you've not been with us since the beginning of the year, we preach through books of the Bible. We preach basically line by line so that we might squeeze out of God's word all of the beautiful golden blessings that he has for us in the Bible. And today we find ourselves in the end of the 23rd chapter coming into the 24th chapter Of the book of Exodus. Now, one of the things we have to understand for you to get a grasp of the book of Exodus, one of the things you need to understand if you're going to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they relate, is this key word uh, that has been used in all sorts of different ways throughout church history. But this key word, as we'll use it today, covenant that God uh, makes with people in history and then forwards his purposes of salvation through history, mainly through the instrumentality of covenant. And covenant is that God comes into relationship with people, he makes promises to them. He makes conditions on their side. And then he makes all of these blessings on one side if the covenant is upheld. And cursings or punishments on the other side if, if the covenant is broken. This is how God has moved forward his, his, his saving purposes throughout redemptive history from the very beginning. There's lots of different covenants in scripture. And, and what makes them different is that they're between different people. In covenant thinking, we call these different parties. Sometimes it's God and Adam and all of humankind in him. Sometimes it's more specifically God and Abraham and all of the Israelites in him. So there's different parties. There's different promises that are made. There's different sanctions, which is just a fancy word for blessing and curse, different sanctions, and also different conditions for how you get into those covenants. Now, once you start understanding this, it, it becomes somewhat of a, a large key that slips into the Bible's lock and unlocks for us all of those mysterious passages and all of those uh, confusing ways you might be uh, 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 troubled when you read the Old Testament. Covenants that God has made throughout history with different people, different promises, different sanctions and different, uh, different conditions are often sealed in blood. Often, not always, but often they're sealed in blood, so that, so that then the, uh, the parties would look at the sacrificed animal that is, that is lying dead before them, and, and they would say to one another, behold the blood. Behold the blood of the covenant that you and I have made. We are bound into this agreement together. God made such covenants, sometimes with sacrifices, sometimes not, uh, with Adam, he made a covenant with Adam who broke it, therefore the fall came upon us all. He made a covenant with Noah that he would not again flood the earth, and we're very thankful for that, aren't we? We've given him plenty of reasons to do so, but by his common grace, he has not done so. God made a covenant, more specifically with Abraham and all of his family, which would become the Israelite nation. God made another covenant with Moses, and later on in the Bible, we see that God makes a covenant with David. And so, all of these main people to whom God makes a covenant and then promises it to others, we call them covenant heads because the scripture speaks of them as, as if they are standing at the top of the covenant, representing everybody else who is in that covenant. So, they're called covenant heads. <coughs> All of them, all of these covenants, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, are all building for and building towards and preparing for and pointing to Jesus Christ and the new covenant that he brings in, in his life, death, and resurrection. So this this means that it's actually important for us to understand the gospel by way of covenant. That, that, that when God uh, enters into a, a saving relationship with you through the gospel, it's not merely a relationship, it's not merely a blessing being handed down from heaven. The biblical language of it is that it is, it is actually a relationship sealed by promises with blessings, sealed with blood, and thus a covenant. And so it is spoken of in the New Testament. And we enter that covenant. How? How? How do we enter the covenant of Jesus Christ, that new covenant? How do we enter? We enter by faith alone. The only way you can enter into the new covenant, which is the the era that we're under now, you can't enter and go back through the other doors, through those other covenants. We enter God's saving graces through Jesus and we come to him not because our family line is Christian or Jewish or anything else, not because our parents did something to us or prayed a specific thing for us or gave us a, a, a Christian shirt to wear, not because you have a cross around your necklace, you went to a Christian school or because you were you were sprinkled as a baby. The entrance into salvation is by personal faith in God's promises received unto you and then the New Testament way, the, the, the Christian way to symbolize, to show, to picture to everybody, what happened to you is that you were dunked under water. And this is what the New Testament calls the, the sign of salvation, the sign of the new covenant, baptism by water. You have entered, if you're a Christian, let's think this way, if you're a Christian, you have entered into a covenant relationship with the triune God through his son in whom he made all of his promises. Now now as we come to Exodus 23 and 24, we see one of the three high points of the book of Exodus. The first high point is really uh, the Exodus out of Egypt from where the book gets its name. The leaving, the escape from slavery in Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. The, The second big high point of the book of Exodus is this chapter that we're in today when God seals and ratifies and establishes and confirms this covenant and even lets some of the Israelites see him. It's an enormous chapter. And then the third is at the end of the book of Exodus, when they finish making the tabernacle, temple, tent, and God's glory comes down. Today we're in a very important part of the book of Exodus, but it is important for us to remember that the Moses-Israelite covenant that we're reading about today is a different covenant to the gospel that we are meeting God through by grace this morning. So important to say. Firstly, because some of us might get confused and start trying to obey the Moses law in order to be on good terms with God, and that is damning. Others of us because uh, we, we will just read it wrong and misunderstand and misapply all sorts of the old parts of the Old Testament and try and steal some of their blessings for us, right? I believe I'm a good Christian. I shouldn't have any miscarriages, verse 27 says. So to save us from being damned or to save us from being horribly confused and, and disappointed we have to establish and understand that the Moses covenant is a different covenant. Do you, know what, do you know what the Moses covenant made at Sinai? Covenants are called different things. Sometimes it's the Mosaic covenant because of who it was made with, Moses. Sometimes it's called the Sinai covenant because it was made at Sinai, the location. The law covenant because it's a handing down of law. What, that, what was made this day is not a promise or an offer of eternal life. This is not a saving covenant. Not only because of the Israelite sinfulness and inability to get eternal life, but it's not even on offer in the book of Exodus. I mean, you can go every page, every line, and every word. You'll never find the promise, if you do these things, you will get eternal life. Now, what is on offer? That's not to say that there's no blessings. There's amazing, unique, transformative, redemptive blessings in the book of Exodus. But, but where they sort of cap off, the, the highest they can reach for the most perfect, obedient Israelite is a long life of blessing and plentitude in the land of Cana with protection from enemies. Now, that's awesome. That, that's part of God's promises to Abraham. That's amazing blessings. But, but you can still go to hell at the end of that. The old covenant, the Moses covenant, never put on offer eternal life. It wasn't made in Jesus. It was not conditioned on faith. It offered agricultural, family, political, military, uh, 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 financial blessings. Yes, but it was made to Abraham's offspring, the, the physical line of Moses of of of, uh, of Abraham, and therefore the condition into this old covenant, the condition for which the sign was a circumcision, the condition for entering this old covenant normatively, and there's other ways in, but this is the normal one, is birth to an Israelite. That is that you can say of the flesh, look at me, test my blood, scrape my DNA, look at my lineage, check my ancestry.com, Moses. I'm a son of Abraham. Therefore, you are allowed as a son of Abraham entrance into this old covenant and an obligation to follow its laws but that's not the case in the new covenant the new covenant is not entered by first birth but second birth therefore there's a great distinction i don't want to say a contrariety in the sense that the old covenant taught one thing jesus came down and pointed us the other direction and said you've been going wrong since moses it's not the outline of the bible However, there is a large distinction in why God gave the Moses Covenant and why God establishes the New Covenant. One is saving, one is not. One is in Jesus, one is through Moses and the blood of bulls and goats. So, this is not to say, because we are, we are New Covenant Christians. Amen? We have come to God on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, not by our law keeping. Amen? But, We are not New Testament-only Christians. We don't chop the book off at the end of Malachi and just celebrate in our last 27 books. We are Christians, which means the whole revealed word of God is helpful for us. And so we go to Exodus chapter 23 and 24 now to understand God's covenant that he made through Moses with the people. We're going to read first the uh, the rest of chapter 23. So this is going to be from verse 20 to 33 of chapter 23. This is, some of the, last, this is the last sort of a paragraph speech that God says to Moses alone on the top of Mount Sinai. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the space that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you into the Amorites and the uh, Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Mozibites, and I blot... Uh, Pardon, pardon, my misreading. And I blot them out, verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars to pieces, seeker-sensitive Israelites. Verse 25, you shall serve Yahweh, your God, and then he will bless you, your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land, for I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, and drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land then become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set the border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness of the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods." They shall not dwell in your land, lest, you make, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the first third of our reading today. And what we see here is the covenant promises and blessings that God made to Moses and the Israelites on the back of or because of his more fundamental covenant that he made with Abraham. God had promised Abraham. Do you remember way back in Exodus chapter two and three that the reason God intervened and saved them from slavery and brought them out through the Red Sea was because of his covenant with Abraham. God doesn't know how to break a promise. And he had not said to Abraham, I'll give your descendants a land if, if Abraham, you don't do something silly like move everybody to Egypt and get enslaved. He didn't make that conditionally. He promised them. I'll bring you into this beautiful Canaan land flowing with milk and honey. I will bring you, your descendants in. And so here is God promising to Moses precisely what he had first promised to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, and repeated to Jacob. Now what is glorious here is you can read verse 20 to 22. uh, 23 mentions it as well, and he talks about this angel. This angel that God is sending with the Israelites, by his promise, he, he calls him a he, so it's not an it, it's a, it's a person. He says that my name is in him. He says that to obey this voice is to obey God's voice. He says, listen to his rules and what I say. He synonymizes this. It is authoritative because to disobey is to die. This is, this angel, this is God himself. Now, we've seen this before in the book of Exodus, that that God appeared to Moses as a burning bush. God appeared to the Israelites as flame and smoke from heaven. God appeared to the Israelites as, as a rock. And as we read the fullness of the biblical testimony, we're told that these things were Christ with the Israelites. That is that God is making himself visible, manifest among the people, in the person of the second person of the Trinity, the person of the divine son. God, the son, is present with the people as the angel to speak, to lead, to guide, and to bless and punish so long as they obey. This is God making himself known to them before Jesus became incarnate. He was yet among his people as a leading angel. We see that as God promised here in this long section, he he promised many things. In giving them the land of Canaan, he promised everything else that that entailed, which meant he would give them protection from their enemies. We read that he would would bless them. They would have plenty of food, no sickness, no miscarriages, and really long life. Their conquest would be victorious, and they would chase all their enemies away with ease in battle, and then that he would give them the land to possess so carefully, God would not just... Get rid of all of the Canaanites and, and the Israelites have to scramble and, and manage four farms per family. Now, he would move them out slowly over a generation so that the Israelites could, could multiply and take the land. But all of this is yet conditioned on the Israelites' obedience. This is where we start having a heavy heart. I mean, if you know the Bible and you know yourself, if you know the story... You get a heavy heart every time God says, I will do this if you obey. Because that's game over. The Israelites, or us today, or any natural man, no one can remain in God's good graces by our own law keeping. But look at verse 21. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel, for he will not pardon your transgression. My name is in him this blessing of the land, well, God would fulfill his promises to Abraham and give them the land. Their success in the land was dependent upon obedience. Verse 22, if you carefully obey, if you obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. So, so this is in one hand unconditional. God will be there, but it is Conditional. Because if they fail and fail and rebel and sin, he will withdraw his blessings from them. So if all these laws, all of these commandments that we've just been reading in what is called the Book of the Covenant, chapter 20 to 23, the Ten Commandments, and then all of the other applied laws, if those are not kept as a nation, say goodbye to the blessings. That's what he's saying. Say goodbye to these blessings, Israel. I am not here to be manipulated or, or, or taken advantage of. I will remain being your God, or you will stop being my blessed people." that wasn't the old covenant. Blessings required obedience. And then we see that this covenant, in the next section, verse uh, chapter 24, verse three and onwards, this covenant that God made. In the Ten Commandments, through Moses to the people of Israel, with all of the applied laws, with the promise of the future land, if they obey, that covenant is then sealed or inaugurated in blood. So Look at chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came down the mountain and he told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, let's read this together, verse 3, up on the screen, in the ESV, if you've got an NIV, repent and look at the screen, and uh, we'll read together. I'll say the, all they said, and we'll all read together. Uh, uh, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And there, they sealed their fate into the beautiful but risky Old Covenant. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and then 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings for the people uh, of oxen to the Lord. And Moses, he took half the blood and put it in bowls and half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, let's read again, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What a, what a marvelous, wonderful, dramatic bloody scene. As this unfolds, we see this, this confirmed covenant in precisely the process that the ancient people used to make treaties. The ancient people of this world used to make covenants one with another, and, and uh, there were some differences, but often they followed kind of this paradigm that we see unfold in, in this chapter 24 of Exodus. That is that the two parties would come together, and having made verbal agreement of what they're going to do, they write it down. And then they make a, a verbal pact that what is written will be kept. Now, here's what they, they would usually do. They would take animals and slice them in half. They would drag part of the, to, the, the corpse over here and part of the corpse over here. And it would make a bit of a pathway of blood and body. And sometimes they would join arms, sometimes they would just walk together, maybe one before the other, but they would walk both through this path of blood, beholding the blood of the covenant. And what they're saying is, if I break this covenant, if I'm not good for the terms of this covenant, if I turn around and betray this covenant, may it happen to me as has happened to these animals on whose blood we are walking. And in the same way, Moses then walks through this process of the covenant. He, he first, he comes to Israel, right? He's come down the mountain. They're all sitting, waiting at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And he comes down after having heard chapters 21 through 23, And he says to them, he says, here's what God said. Here's what this looks like in justice. Here's what the Ten Commandments looks like in in the family and in agriculture and in finance and in worship and in festivals. This is what we're agreeing to. And they all said, bring it on. This sounds amazing. What a gracious God. And they were right. And so he walked away and he wrote it all down. And then the next day, he built this enormous altar to represent God and yet also represent the people. And where did he put it? He put it in between God and the people. At the bottom of the mountain of God, and at the front of the hordes of people, he put this altar. And then he put up 12 uh, uh, pillars to represent the, the, the people of Israel, all of their tribes. And then he got the young guys, go and wrangle some bulls, bring them forward, and butcher them. And probably on other altars, they start burning some, and others they make meals with. That's, that's the peace offering. They chop it up, they burn some, and then the worshipper and the priest get to have a morsel to eat together, to, to symbolize our covenant meal with God. <coughs> but then Moses, he tells the young men, as, as you're bleeding all of these animals, bleed them all into buckets. Don't let it just fall on the ground. And so there they are, with literally thousands of liters of blood in buckets. And half of them he puts into these, into these large basins, these baths, these bowls. And the rest of them he has brought up to the altar. And he picks up the bud in the buckets of blood and he pours it over this enormous stone altar. He just, just sheds the blood all over it, coating it. It is dripping with liters upon liters upon buckets and buckets and buckets of ox blood. And then he takes that book that he wrote and he walks in front of the people He has them all stand and he reads line by line. You think I'm going slow. He read the entirety of chapter 20 through 23. The the two words in the Hebrew are the words and the law. The words are literally the 10 words, what we call the 10 commandments. The law was all of the legal instructions for Israel as a nation. He read it to them and again they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And then he took up the bowls. He probably had help. Maybe he had them walk walk by in an enormous million-person line. Maybe he walked among them and sprinkled them. We don't know. But everyone, no matter how, how nice your clothing is this morning, you walk up the front and Moses sprinkles you with ox blood. No room for squeamishness or vegans in the company of Israel today at the foot of Mount Sinai. He sprinkles them with blood and they walk on. He sprinkles them with blood and they walk he sprinkles them with blood and what's his word to them it's kind of to God and it is also to the people he says to them behold pay close attention to what stains your clothes right now look at it and remember what it signifies this is not an unconditional spraying of promises this is not a clear check Do whatever you want in Canaan, remember God when you feel like it, and you'll be rich. That was not what the blood represented. To them, the blood reminded them that obedience to the law was required for the blessings that God was so freely opening them up to. So much grace from God, and yet much requirement on their part. And it was as if he was also saying to God, by putting the blood on the altar, he was saying, God, don't consume us. Don't kill us. Please be merciful. Fulfill your word and your promises. Behold the blood. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made to us today. In accordance with all these words, says Moses. When you look down at the blood on your Sunday best, maybe you even got on your leather-bound copy of the Torah, I don't know as you got blood on you and you go back down and you take your seats in the pews and Pastor Moses keeps on preaching, you're supposed to realize this whole thing, it's a matter of life or death. It is a matter of life and death. An animal dies so that we may live. This has sealed us into the covenant. Now, it is this for this reason that Hebrews 9... Hebrews 9, the writer of the Hebrews, when he's explaining the Old Covenant, he goes to this passage because it's such a main chapter in the book of Exodus and in the people of Israel's history. And in Hebrews 9, the writer expounds on and sort of explains what's going on here. And he says in verse 19 through 22, as he's explaining the importance of blood for salvation, he says not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. That's a bit of a lowball way to say it, isn't it? The first covenant wasn't with no blood. No, it was with millions of litres of blood, in fact, over the years. Literally, millions upon millions of litres. I don't know what a way to say it. It wasn't without blood. Yeah, you think? It was with much blood. Verse 19 says, For when the commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, it's what we just read, he took the blood, And sprinkle both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant. Indeed, the writer of Hebrews says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shed, Why so much bloody gore in the Old Testament? Because God wanted to scream at the people. And every Gentile that ever reads the Old Testament, he wanted to scream at us. Without shed blood, there's no forgiveness. Without death, there is no paying for sin. Without your life being offered, there is no redemption from sin's curse. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin's. So so God and Israel now, now that the blood has been shed, the promises made, the the mutual agreement come to, the the book read, they're covenant partners now. Yahweh and Israel are covenant parties in this promise. Now the other part of the ancient, uh, ancient tradition, when you're making a treaty, is that after you've walked through the blood and you've both got a little bit on you to signify your partnership, then you would go and you would sit down and you would cook the animals and you would have a meal to represent that we are in fellowship here. We are partners, we are allies, we are friends. And that is exactly what we see God commands to the Israelites as well. So look back at the beginning of chapter 24, this is where God commands it and then we'll see the fulfillment. In chapter 24, verse 1 and 2, God said to Moses, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Look at verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What an amazing scene. As this covenant has been made and they're entering into a feast together to eat and drink, the the elders, the 70 elders have been selected as a legal representation of all of the tribes of Israel. So no, not everybody went into the presence of God and ate with him, but by representation, the whole nation is feasting with God today. And there's just this unimaginably confusing, glorious, beautiful word here, isn't there? In verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel, in verse 10. They saw God. This is confusing for us, because in just a couple of chapters, which we've already read, because we're New Testament Christians, but Moses hadn't heard this yet, but everybody knows it probably to their gut, that when you see this God, you die. Remember we just heard his voice, and we all wished we were dead? Now now in verse 33, uh, chapter 33, God's going to say to Moses, no man can look on me and live. So what's happening here? That the men are seeing God, looking on him, yet living. Well, there's two two levels to this. First of all, it doesn't say that they come and they look on God face to face. It it doesn't uh, uh, have this long description of what he looked like and what his eyes were like and what his clothes were like, like other portions of scripture do. The only body part, did you notice it? What's the only body part that they actually explicitly say they saw? It was his feet and what was under his feet. See, when you come up to an ancient king and a monarch, you don't come face to face. It's appropriate that you climb stairs, gravel, gravel at his feet, and you don't look him eye to eye. In fact, sometimes, for the, for the really snooty kings and princes, they wouldn't even have stairs. They of a secret compartment that they can climb. And then when other people come, there's just this unattainable height where the monarch sits. That's what's being pictured here. The Israelites, the elders are not looking at God. They're looking up to God. In fact, the language of the sapphire stone pavement seems to suggest that they're looking up and they can... It's like they're under the stage. They're looking up and they see this clear, heavenly blue crystal sapphire cement thing where God is sitting up there somewhere, and all we can see is the soles of his feet on that ground. They look up, they behold God. They put their faces down, and they eat and drink. Isn't it amazing that in, this, in his presence, it says right here in, in, uh, uh, in verse 11, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people. That is to say, in other words, he did not raise his hand against them. They came into his presence. He did not destroy them. Why? Why? Because God is beholding the blood. God is making good on his promise that if they shed the blood properly and they obey entirely, he will be Fulfilling of his own promises. He let them come in because he invited them. And he is, instead of looking on their blood in punishment, he is looking, though they're sinners in his presence, he is looking at the blood of the covenant that is all over their clothing. He is looking at blood-stained garments instead of looking down on them in wrath. And therefore, in this covenant meal, where they see God, God looks at them, they behold the blood of the covenant, and they eat and drink is perfectly reshadowed in fullness when Jesus comes and celebrates the last Passover meal with his friends. As He sits there and he's with the 12, we could say the elders of the church, the, the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ as, as representatives of, of the coming church and, and Jesus is right there and they are beholding God. T- to see Jesus is to behold the Father. They behold God, God beholds them Jesus lifts the glass and says, behold my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many. And then what do they do? They eat and they drink as covenant partners in the new covenant. Jesus brings and offers a much better covenant than the old. So so to study the, the covenant of Moses, it is instructive It helps us understand the Old Testament. It's God breathed and beneficial for us. But to study it ultimately drives us to a black and white contrast between Moses and Jesus, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between law and gospel. To understand and study the Old Covenant of Moses is to come away thinking, how much better is Jesus than Moses? That's how the book of Hebrews starts out. Jesus is worth of more glory than that of Moses. He mediates a better covenant with better promises, says the book of Hebrews. Without the shedding of blood, the old covenant showed us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of the animals, however, Hebrews is clear on this, The blood of the animals was only able to bring an external consecration. An external bodily consecration. That is, that as an Israelite who comes near with a guilty conscience and a sinful record, you come near and you shed the blood and you approach God, you're allowed to be spared in that moment. When the Day of Atonement is is done and the blood is shed on the altar... On the the, the mercy seat and the high priest comes out. God forgives their sins for another 12 months as long as they are faithful to do it again. So that they're allowed to come into the holy presence of God. They're allowed to offer the sacrifices. They're allowed to be his covenant people. They're allowed to come in and do worship. They're allowed to enter the temple and the tabernacle. And at the end of their life, they could die and go to hell. Because the blood of bulls and goats was only meant to consecrate or to forgive them externally, never eternally or internally. Never eternally or internally. For that, they had to believe the promises that a Messiah was going to come and save them from their sins. Or we look back and remember that God did send his Messiah who suffered and died for our sins. What the blood in the Old Covenant did to them was preach to them that sin costs life, that forgiveness requires sacrifice, and it was all pointing to Jesus. In Jesus, he sprinkles his own blood upon us and his own blood upon the spiritual altar in heaven so as to bring God and man into reconciliation again where there was only enmity because of our sin and God's holiness. This is why the Old Covenant preached that you needed blood to be forgiven, but the New Covenant promises that blood is shed and you can be forgiven. What the Old Covenant demanded, the New Covenant declares, it's done, it's finished, tatalestai, it is paid in full. And therefore we can look to the New New Testament and find these promises about Jesus' blood in the writings of, of Paul and John. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 3:25. We have now been justified by his blood. Romans 5:9. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1:7. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2:13. Through Christ, God reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, Revelation 1, 5. It is by the blood of Jesus that God's wrath is satisfied we are justified, we are redeemed, reconciled, brought near, forgiven, and freed from sins. We are saved by the blood, the blood of the covenant. Which means if you're a non Christian today, you're faking the Christian life while living in sin, or, or you, you've come here as, a, as an invited guest or a friend, and, and he, you're sitting here and you know you are outside of Jesus, you are not forgiven, and you're not a Christian. To you, My command is, behold the blood. Blood has been shed by Jesus, which promises to you that you can be saved without any obedience. Is that amazing? Does that even sound blasphemous that I'm saying it like that? God promises to you, non-Christian, that you can be saved without offering any obedience. And I know you have none to offer. That is exactly the kind of promise you need. And that's exactly what the gospel is. The gospel is not a command like the old covenant. Do this and live. Obey and be blessed. Do the law and you'll live. Rather, the gospel is is the law flipped on its head. And it says, Jesus fulfilled the law. Therefore, just believe and you'll live. Just accept the promise. Believe it by faith. That's the one condition that then you'll be blessed you have eternal life. This is the gospel covenant of Jesus. Believe it and you will be saved. Believe it and you can come forward and we will baptize you into the new covenant. Behold the blood of Jesus that takes away the sin of the world. And for Christians, behold the blood. Remember the blood of the new covenant shed for you, which means if you're struggling with sin, the blood reminds you of what? Payment? Wrath? Judgment? No. The blood of Jesus reminds you God will purify you. He will grow you. He will strengthen you. And he will pardon every one of your shortcomings. The blood of Jesus calls you to obedience, but first promises you the ability to obey because you are born again. So all of us behold the blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their filthy stains. Lose all their filthy stains. What stains have you? None of them can outlast the blood of Jesus. What stains have you, what sins have you committed? All of them will be washed clean from your slate in the sight of God because of the blood of Jesus. Behold the blood. Let's pray. God, what a reminder it is to stand here looking through the Bible at this scene that unfolded at the, at the, the foot of Mount Sinai. Where the blood was shed. You were were momentarily appeased and you allowed a people to commune with you in grace. But God, it is is by faith that we behold a much grander scene. A scene that was at the foot of the cross, where blood was shed from Jesus' veins, that reconciled sinners to God eternally, completely, completely reconciliation, peace, love and grace come through Jesus Christ Lord God. We thank you for the old covenant. We thank you for the law. We thank you for the full breadth of scripture. But we thank you that the fullness of the substance has come in Jesus. We thank you that you don't require us to bring another sacrifice this Sunday morning. You don't demand that we go out and obey and then we'll live. But you promise that because we live by your grace, you will help us to obey. We thank you, Lord God, for the freeness of the promise that is in the gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ who has sealed these things to us. We praise you. We thank you. We ask that more would come to know this gospel promise and blessing by being born again and having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his name and for his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.